Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 36, January 2021. Shakespeare's Shapely Language. A conversation with Jan Gist. Hi, Paul Meyer here. Welcome and Happy New Year. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I am an old grandmother, 89 years of age. In 1940, I went up to study. But then after one year and one semester, the war broke out. The first thing I, I felt, and also my cousins, with whom I'm living with, were all happy because I, we thought that war was something to, to enjoy. If you guessed the Philippines, congratulations. It was Ideas Philippines 8. Aldrin Fauni Thanos, Idea Associate Editor, recorded this 89-year-old Filipino in 2013. To hear the whole recording, search for Philippines 8 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I lived in an apartment and not in my place, so I stay away for the week. But then, in the weekend, I have the opportunity to come back. But here, just after four or five months, I can go home. And so I have to organize my whole life here, and this means study, work, but also live. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Jan Gist, one of our foremost coaches of heightened text. By heightened text, we usually mean plays or poems or oratory, composed perhaps in verse and or with classical rhetorical devices. It often takes a lot of skill for an actor or an orator to recognise these devices or shapes, as Jan calls them, and put them to work naturally and effectively. Jan is a master at coaching such projects. For more information on Professor Gist, see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this month's podcast. So welcome, Jan Gist. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We were just reminiscing about when we might last have seen each other in the flesh. We think it was Glasgow in the early noughts, the early aughts. Yes. And then when I first met you and was turned on to your work, we're pretty sure it's 2001 when you did the Voice and Speech Trainers Association Conference workshop on what turned into your amazing work on Shakespeare's shapely language. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it feels as if I've seen you more because I follow your work a little bit. And especially because every time I use idea, I see you in my mind's eye. So uh, You can't escape my voice, can you, as I introduce every sample on idea. <laughs> yeah. So Jan, remind us where you took uh, the term, which I love, by the way, Shakespeare's shapely language. It's a beautiful term. Tell us where you got it. When Vasta invited me to speak about coaching Shakespeare, I thought, how do I name it? What do I say? And I had been working on Midsummer Night's Dream and I was looking at all of the things I coach uh, to help actors make sense out of Shakespeare. Theseus in Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 5, Scene 1, is talking to Hippolyta. He says, 
The poet's eye in fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Hmm. And I thought that the poet's pen with the, the actor is looking at what the poet's pen had done on the page, but it's the speaker's job to turn those shapes of imagination into speaking the imagination and that there are shapes that help you dis- make one moment distinct from another moment. Yeah. It's ironic, though, isn't it, that Theseus is actually um, denigrating the poet's work. He equates it with the, the frenzy of the, of the madman and of the lover. So it's interesting that Shakespeare puts into the mouth of the arch-rational materialist Theseus, who won't believe the things that happened to Bottom and in the forest, you know, all the, the fairy stuff that came out of the forest. And um, so denigrates poetry. I find that interesting because that gives the best conflict between in the conversation, in the debate between Theseus and Hippolyta, as you're saying it. Yeah. But I'm also thinking that this moment has room for him to have some admiration for something that he doesn't himself live with. And so he starts by saying, well, we can't believe the lovers. And then he starts spinning off on it's crazy talk. It's, it's lunatics, but poets do imagine things and they do create something out of nothing. And because he loves Hippolyta, who is clearly in favor of believing the lovers fantastical story of their, of their adventure in the woods. Uh, so perhaps he, out of his love for his betrothed, he, um, he's, he's starting to tune into her worldview, perhaps. So what do we mean by shapes? Is it the same thing as, as rhetorical devices? I think it's a little more in, in your approach, perhaps. Yeah, because I am not very scholarly about classic rhetoric, but it is the shape of what the speaker is doing in order to make their point, in order to win their argument or imagine something so that it's the job that's being done, the spoken job that they're doing. Some of it matches classic rhetoric. More than that, for instance, when you ask a question, that is a particular job that is different than when you are making a statement. And that is a different job than when you are making a command. And so a question, a statement and command need to be spoken so that we hear that's what the, that one thing is doing. Yes, and it seems to me that today's actors, uh, perhaps it's under the influence of, of movie-style acting, are often flat and ambivalent and undifferentiated. Yes. Uh, are, are we both betraying our age in decrying that uh, departure from clarity in thinking and speaking? Perhaps we are. I think there's a trade-off. I think current American speakers are trying to speak simply and they either get very excited and kind of yell and use bold print (laughs) announcements of I am right and you are wrong, 
or they get very internal. And there's it, some of it has to do with camera work, the style of camera work nowadays, so that the, the speaking is held internally and that anything extra, extra notes, extra voice moving forward and out is almost distrusted, too fancy, too show off. I think, it's, I think it's largely forgotten that rhetoric is actually a noble art uh, dedicated to clear and persuasive speaking. Uh, and it's become, become a pejorative term, hasn't it? Oh, listen to that rhetoric, mere rhetoric, and it's just got a bad rap. It does. In fact, a lot of people think that's the only thing it means, mm-hmm. is someone is being a trickster with language and trying to make a fool out of you. But what I mean is that you are clarifying thoughts. Yeah. So you've got lots and lots of different shapes that you explore. I often call it the architecture of the argument, sometimes rhetorical devices. So let's, let's go th- through a few of those for our non-specialist audience and see how the work of text coaches like, like we are and the actors we work with can have a wider implication for perhaps politics, perhaps even the world of commercials, where we're trying to persuade someone to a point of view. Take us through some of some of the shapes you commonly address. Yeah, one of the things is comparing and contrasting, which other people call antithesis. I have actors put both palms up in front of them, and as they're speaking one part of a thought, they're weighing it in the palm of their hand, And then they speak the other part of the thought and they're weighing it in their other hand. The job of the antithesis is that you are comparing or contrasting one thing against another or a number of things on this side against a number of things on that side. And by weighing them, you are getting more nuance of meaning than if you just say one thing and put it down and then say the other thing and put it down. If you go to Mark Antony's speech... Yeah, should we look at that? Uh-huh. So he says, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. So that's a very simple one. And then he goes on, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. So you have bury versus praise. But if you just say, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him, then we hear the two bits of information. Yeah, we know the contrasting words, the the load-bearing words, as I like to, to think of it. Yes, but we hear two separated ideas. But when you bring them together and don't do the downglide, you don't say, I come to bury Caesar. But if you do instead, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Then we hear bury versus praise. Then we're weighing bury versus praise against each other. And then the audience is thinking as smartly as Shakespeare's characters are thinking. Right. And they're congratulating themselves on doing what they hadn't expected to do in the theater, which is to understand the text, right? Right. (laughs) The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. Yeah. 
That's right. So, so they're, following, they're following the argument and, and you're making the audience smart and letting them tune into the argument. And then the argument is about deep meaning. What is evil and what is good? And evil lives after people are dead, but good is buried with them. He's already starting to flip ideas on their heads. So that's weighing things that are contrasted with each other, often called antithesis. What other kinds of shapes should can we observe, not only in Shakespeare, but in, in the way we speak politically and commercially and so forth? When you are addressing someone by their name or their title, this is an extraordinary opportunity of relationship. The way we address somebody is the way we are feeling about them or the way we are asking them to behave. So, for instance, again, in um, uh, Mark Antony, when he starts the speech and he doesn't say citizens and he doesn't say, hey, you commoners, he says friends, then Romans, and then countrymen. So here's a shape within a shape, because he has an address that is a list. Yes, the power of the list. And often they come in threes, don't they? Why do we love magic threes, lists of three items? They're so powerful and they're used so, so much, aren't they? Mm -hmm, they are. Our language kind of does it, good, better, best, bad, worse, worst. You know? So maybe there's a, a logic within the way we think in our language as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, commercials always have little lists of threes. I found one here. Rosetta Stone Interactive Software teaches you any of 30 languages, all without translation, memorization, or grammar drills. Yeah, what most commercials on radio and television are do, and have really done for the past 10 or even 20 years, is to say one, two, and three. I hear it over and over again. Instead of saying one, Two, three, they say one, two, and three. We can hold three in our head. A list of four things, not so, not so easy. A list of one or two, one isn't a list. Two, two isn't really a list, but three is compelling. Well, if one is true and two is true and three is true, well, this must be a damn fine product, right? Yes. And then you get characters all through Shakespeare who have very long lists and then that's a way of building something exciting or compelling. Uh, when Juliet is considering taking the poison, she lists all the things that might happen to her, not just three. And there are lists within lists. And the job of a list is that each item has an individual identity or meaning. Yeah, they're not synonyms, are they? They're not just... Items of equal weight, they have character of their own, don't they? Yeah, so the speaker has to enliven the individual meaning of each thing in the list. So that's mm -hmm. one part of the job. But the next part of the job is that there's a relationship and a list is a build. It's growing something yeah. more. That's another of your shape, to recognize builds, right? Right. So that it's not just one two, three. And it's not even just one, two, three, but it is one, two, three. <laughs> so it's growing yeah. more and more. I've got, 
I always teach that, that there's an accumulating power. The power of the list comes from its accumulating bulk, as it were. It's not necessarily that the first item in the list is, is more, more or less important than any other, but, but cumulatively, if you're listing the attributes of a, of a product or a character or, or an idea, uh, it does gain this extra weight. The more items you attribute to it, mm-hmm. the more powerful it becomes. Yeah, great, great. And then also you have to ask, does the character intend to make a list when they start with the first thing? Do they know they're on their way through a list? I would say that most speakers in Shakespeare do know that they're on their way and that they're making the point and the next point and the next point and the next point. But sometimes they might not. And that's when you can break the rules. You could have an interpretation of Antony intending only to say, friends, but the crowd doesn't listen to him. So then he says, Romans, and the crowd still doesn't listen to him. And then he says, countrymen, lend me your ears. That would be a way of breaking the rule of list that could work in a particular production, but you have to be careful. If you only break the rules, then you have chaos. Yes. And and of course, if if you come to your speech act as an actor or an orator, um, with all of the message pre-digested and simply delivers something that's intended, it lacks that spontaneous, in-the-moment discovery of what you need to say next. And so even in your second interpretation of Friends, Romans, Countrymen, he doesn't know that he's going to say Romans and Countrymen until he actually has a need to say it, but yet it does still have that build, doesn't it, Friends? Romans! Mm-hmm. Cut. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, great. Yeah, so there are so many different ways. Because looking at the shape, you are asking, what is the writing trying to do? And how do I speak that into embodiment and into relationship? And that redeems it from becoming merely rhetorical, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? It becomes human after all. Yeah. Got some more shapes for us? Yes, uh, there are curses, prophecies, plans, and omens. The job of all of these things, curses, prophecies, omens, plans, promises, and vows, (laughs) they are each a different thing, but all of them are speaking the future into existence. And so it's it's a complicated job to do for the speaker because I am speaking in the moment to the person I'm talking to. So I am in a current now relationship. But as I am speaking, I am causing the future to come about. In a culture, and coming from a culture that very much believed in that as a possibility. Perhaps Mm -hmm. perhaps we don't believe in the efficacies of curses and prophecies as such today, nearly as strongly as they did in Shakespeare's time, but but we've got to unlock that primal power, haven't we, of curses, yes. prophecies, omens. Yes, and we do today have plans and promises and vows. We have marriage vows, mm-hmm. for instance, but um, we make plans with each other constantly, and we and we make promises. Politicians are constantly, they speak the language of promises. I do. And so one of the things 
that is important in a play is that you have to speak the future so compellingly that later on in the story, when it does take place or it doesn't take place, the audience is with you. They've, they go, oh, you're breaking your promise, or yes, you're, you're fulfilling the promise as you promised. Nice, nice. And I think they believed back then that the spoken word was more powerful than the written word, that some, some thought-given sound, you know, in the beginning was the word, and all of that stuff about the, the sonic causation of phenomena. Mm-hmm. They, they really did believe that if I speak a curse aloud, it's got more power than when I simply write it, I think. That's my feeling. So it does require for you to get through to your young actors and even your mature actors as you're coaching, the way that curses, prophecies, omens, plans, promises, vows fit into the worldview, the paradigm that was prevailing when the words were written, yes? Yes. So, for, yes, absolutely. So in King John... Uh, he is told there are six moons. <laughs> you know, that's that's an omen. There's supposed to be one, but there mm-hmm. are in the play actually six moons. It's not hyperbole. It's not a lie or just poetic imagination. I see six moons. Something is terribly, terribly wrong in on the on the planet. So the omens are that divinity is speaking to us and we are reading the signs of what divinity is telling us. Fantastic. I was wondering whether lamentation, I know it doesn't fit into speaking to the future or manifesting a future the way that the other six things you mentioned are, but lamentation has a kind of formality to it as well, doesn't it? Sure. And Romeo and Juliet, the, when the family discovers what they think is the dead body of Juliet, mm. they go into heightened lamentation, don't they? As a ritual, the way perhaps we observe in, in the North Koreans when they're engaging mm. in, in public formal lamentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of our talking points was um, this question of that audiences often confess, they have confessed to me, I, I've questioned them directly. Did you expect us to understand everything that was spoken on this stage tonight? Mm-hmm. And many of them say, no, they really don't expect to understand everything that the actors say, but yet they keep coming. I wonder why that is. Is it, is it because they're engaging or responding to the shapeliness of the language, the power of the, of the verse? What is it, do you think, that keeps them coming? Who know? I don't know for sure. He was speaking to many people for many reasons. I remember when I was in college and I went to go see a film of Romeo and Juliet. And as the film started, I, I realized I was thinking to myself, oh, maybe this time they won't have to die. <laughs> and I think there is this being swept up by a story. Uh, what will happen next? And then there's also a depth of character. So we get to live through the life of the characters. And we, we live through the villain and we live through the hero and the romantic uh, lead. And so we have a personal experience 
And then we also have the heightened language that brings us soaring into realms of romance and realms of grief that we're allowed to feel more deeply. So we have story and character and depth of feeling. And then I do think we get to consider questions of meaning. What is good government? What is a loving relationship? How are men and women supposed to treat each other? And there are basic human questions we want to ask and keep asking. So there are many levels, I think, that the audiences are there to get. And if they're not getting one level, they can get another level. Yes. It's not as if understanding depends entirely on the on the word-by-word grammatical understanding. We understand on many levels, don't we? Oh, yeah. In fact, if, I think when audiences bring their Shakespeare scripts and read along, I think they're missing a whole lot because the sweep of the performance is to take you on a magic carpet ride and sweep you forward past your expectations to places you didn't know you were capable of going. Oh, I love the way you put that. So along those lines, I I often wonder why is pattern language so seductive? You're able to analyze for for an actor the shapes, the architecture, perhaps, the architecture of the the speech, the emotional and the, the ethos and the pathos and the logos of the of the speech you're able to point out these devices these shapes the very architecture of the speech in a way that allows the actor to to make it clear on all those levels and it often depends upon patterning doesn't it mm-hmm. which is so persuasive what why why is it that we are so responsive to patterns well there are numerous patterns that we're responding to and of course one is the scansion or the the beats of uh, iambic ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. It's debatable whether that's a heartbeat. I have a colleague, Ray Chambers, who thinks that his heart is trochaic. <laughs> <laughs> dum bum, he, dum he's bum, sure dum that his, that's right. His heart is ba-bumpa, bumpa, bumpa. And I think my heart is ba-bumpa, bumpa, bump. But I, either way, there's a blood pulsing. Indeed. We are alive because we are pumping our bloods in unconscious rhythm. And arrhythmia is a sign that something's wrong with you. Your body is having trouble. There's a pathology to the argument or whatever. If if it's not, if it doesn't have pattern, it's uh, it's a little less credible somehow. And and of course, rhymes and pattern, rhymes and alliteration. Sure. But going back to the rhythm of it, if you've set up a regularity of rhythm so that there is a pulsing, a tide inside the visceral of the body, ba-bum, ba-bum, there is an expectation of this rhythm going on. When you break it, then it is shocking. It stuns. It stops the rhythm and jolts you to something else. And that's a momentary power to grab attention in some other way. Or to seize the attention once again, perhaps sensing that it has waned. Yeah, I I teach in in my uh, Voicing Shakespeare book that you have a copy of, to seize on those first foot trochees. 
So instead of delivering what the ear has become accustomed to hearing, de dum, de dum, de dum, de dum, de dum, dum, bum, ba, suddenly we've got that pattern broken. And the, the very breaking of the pattern confirms the pattern, doesn't it? If you, if you spoke only in endless iambics, you'd stop hearing them. But you've got to break them in order to confirm them somehow. Yeah. And as Shakespeare kept writing, didn't his verse get more complicated? It did. I like to, th I like to think of him as developing ever greater realization of what the iambic pentameter keyboard could deliver. And so he played on this very, very simple 10 syllable line. Mm -hmm. He was able to, by his later years, to, to, to break it, to, to go so close to jeopardizing it as verse at all. Yeah. And yet it stays as verse mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that defies understanding sometimes. Right. And when the actor doesn't honor the verse, there are two ways that actors can go wrong with verse, two of many. But one is if they only are doing a kind of robotic, ba-bump, 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 they need to have relative strength of stress. So that we need to hear not ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum, but ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. Yes, and these terms, strong syllable and weak syllable, of course, are are relative to each other. Right. You know, some so-called weak syllables could be actually stronger than the strongest so-called strong syllable in a line. So yeah, quite right. Let's turn our attention to a, a political speech. I went and grabbed one of the very first. Uh, allegedly great political speeches that people tend to collect. And I found this one. I won't tell you who or when it was spoken. Every solitary one of these aristocratic conspirators and would-be murderers claims to be an arch patriot. Every one of them insists that the war is being waged to make the world safe for democracy. What humbug, what rot. What false pretense? These autocrats, these tyrants, these red-faced robbers and murderers, the patriots, while the men who have the courage to stand face to face with them, speak the truth and fight for their exploited victims, they are the disloyalists and traitors. If this be true, I want to take my place side by side with the traitors in this fight. Mm. You can hear all those shapes. Yes. So is that a, a one of the classic Greeks? This is World War One. Oh. Eugene Debs. Oh. It sounds classical, doesn't it? Yeah. It sounds constructed. It's got the rhetorical flourishes. It's got the shapes. Mm -hmm. um, it's got the builds. It's got the lists. Mm -hmm. He also has, if then, if this be so, then I would rather. Yes. If this be true, I want to take my place side by side with the traitors in this fight. So he's contrasting disloyalists and traitors with, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. He's got these lists of autocrats, tyrants, red-faced robbers. I think all of these help us think more precisely. We are thinking more precisely when we are using these shapes of rhetoric and repetitions and contrasts. They help move from one thought to another so that we can develop our thoughts and not just have one thought repeated. Current politicians often tend to use trigger words to 
rile people and they might not even use good sentence structure. They just sort of randomly wander around, but say a word that will rile up the crowd and then they'll repeat it over and over again. And the riled up crowd gets hotter and hotter, but they're not developing the thought of what does this actually mean? What are the cause and effect going on here? What are the ramifications? What will be the conclusion if I follow this path that I am thinking? The repetition is like a hammer to a bruise, and the bruise gets more and more bruised, so people get madder and hotter. So perhaps the speechwriters are consciously avoiding the use of shapes, complex architecture to these arguments. They certainly, you don't hear today's speeches nearly as persuasive or as complex or as well, uh, you know, indisputable I, as, as, the, as, the, as the ones that we quoted from Julius Caesar. This conforms pretty much with Aristotle's uh, rhetorical analysis. We've got the logos appealing to the rational mind, the pathos appealing to the emotional state and the ethos, depending on the character or the perceived character of the speaker. So, yeah, all, the, the ancient arts are not dead uh, yeah. They may not may not be so so visible today, but they're they're still they're still understood. I, th- I think these shapes that you talk about, Jan, are almost things that I would be so daring as to say that they're true and effective for all time and across all cultures. What do you think? I don't know about how many different cultures. It seems there are human elements to them. I think that there are different expectations in different cultures of what speakers are supposed to do to a crowd. When I teach public speaking, for instance, to some cultures, and I say the job of the public speaker is to be the leader of the crowd, there are other cultures where they want the speaker to invite the crowd rather than command. Mm -hmm. Or there's some cultures that have very different jobs expected of male speakers and female speakers. Mm -hmm. That the male should command, but the female should request. Mm -hmm. So there are some universals, I think, human, I I think built on the body, built on the human anatomy. And then some are very specific and different. Maybe the duple rhythm of the ambient pentameter is because we're two-legged creatures. <laughs> maybe we would have a maybe we would have a different meter that we were in love with if we were four-legged creatures. <laughs> so, what do spiders speak to? <laughs> yes, what's the favorite verse form of spiders? I wonder. <laughs> you know, talking about the different rhetorical expectations in, in different cultures reminds me of a very sobering story that I tell on myself. I was engaged to hire some Native American actors to illustrate a discussion of Native American spirituality, creation myths, and so forth. I remember working very hard to get those Native American actors to essentially speak it with feeling and with emotion and with with persuasive power, expressive, you know, expressive rhetorical acting skills and it was it was sometime in the middle of the process that i realized i was imposing uh, a eurocentric idea of rhetoric upon yeah. upon these 
very good Native American actors. And when I finally allowed myself to tune into the humility and self-effacement that seems to be part of the Native American storytelling style, the power of those myths. You know, when I allowed myself to, to tune into their rhetoric, their oratory, things were so much better. So Jan, I know that you write poems about your art as a, as a text coach. Why don't you close the show with one of those? All right. This is a poem about what I do, what my job is. It's called, I am a vocal coach. Giving myself away, away, giving myself away is how I play at making a play day after day after day. Each of the people I reach to teach burn as they yearn to learn. Igniting delight, I empower their right to own and intone from the core of the bone. So with ease, each one sees how to breathe and believe. I enable a fable by each word that is heard. I cast spells that compel the story to tell through each part, truth of heart with great art. I love that. <laughs> Jan Guest, thank you so very much. You are so welcome. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Professor Jan Gist. Jan's working on a book that synthesizes her many years of work on Shakespeare's shapely language. I can't wait for it to be published. I cover that same territory in my own Voicing Shakespeare ebook. You may order it directly from me at paulmeyer.com. You'll easily find it on the menu bar. And please don't forget to follow Palmyre Dialect Surfaces on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. I'll be flying solo on my February podcast. I'm toying with several topics, but you can be sure it will have something to do with the spoken word. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>